Welcome back to the Abundant Culture Podcast, where business owners like you come to learn how to grow the valuation of their companies so they can sell in the future. On this show, you'll learn how to sell for top dollar and invest in profitable businesses around the country. Now, here are your hosts, Jazz and Joe. Hi, Charles, and thank you again for coming on to the Abundant Culture Podcast. We are super excited to have you today because you, what you do and the book that you just wrote is super relevant to what Joe and I do. So we're always trying to be as informed as possible in this space. But before we get into the meat and potatoes of the episode, we have to ask you, what is your backstory? Like, tell us your your entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, sure. So, um, so I'm British. I, li- I live in London at the moment. But my, my journey really started actually out in China. Um, so while I come from England, I did university in China. I did four years there. Uh, loved it. It, it. It's a phenomenally dynamic culture, people, country, economy. Um, certainly compared to the U- UK, um, I, I think even kind of to some of the larger ones and just seeing the energy there, I really wanted kind of that. That was really the stimulus for me to, to get involved um, in in companies, business, and certainly from my end investment. For me, the cho- choice was really try and do something myself or kind of join with companies in their journey by investing in them and help, helping provide financial support. And I ended up doing the latter. And for me, that is slightly risk mitigation. I, I'm always in awe of those that start their own companies. But being able to invest in a number of companies, uh, it, it means that you don't have to kind of, uh, you don't have to commit to any anyone so much and things can't go so wrong if it, if it collapses, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love that you mentioned that too because uh, people, you know, when I talk to people about investing, sometimes they say, isn't investing risky? And uh, I never really said this, but in the back of my mind, I think I always inherently knew that I would much rather be the investor in the company than the, the like the actual CEO or the founder, the person running the company. Because I think I've been, I've definitely, you know, started my own, you know, company and things of that nature. And I just look at that situation as it's very rewarding, but it's like, man, if I could just get the financial reward of this without having to do this work, I would, I would much rather do that. So I totally agree with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, you do feel sometimes feel a bit of a free rider uh, on their experience. And I think for many management, it must be a bit upsetting when you've kind of built a company and often management will get diluted down, down, down and down, um, well, well, well below kind of majority ownership. And it's then the shareholders that really enjoy getting the upside from these businesses much the time and, and don't have to shoulder that career risk uh, which management do yeah for sure so kind of give me an idea on what does your average day look like in the profession that you're in now like if i'm hearing it right you're you know going out and financially supporting investing in various different types of businesses like what are some of the like duties that you have to fulfill on a fairly uh you know frequent basis yeah sure so so actually I mean, at, at the very moment I'm, I'm finishing up a book so um I, i've been writing that for the la- last few months but basically kind of your, your your typical day for for a professional investor in in london and maybe a bit different in, in new york but uh it, it'd be kind of get up fairly early you, you roll over in bed you, you look at your phone look at bloomberg see what's going up or down and that that, that will pretty much set the tone <laughs> the day I, I, I find it shouldn't but you're like it's certainly a bit of an attitude changer yeah. uh, things going up or down right yeah. um 
that then get in. And, and in my case, because I'm in London uh, and lots of emerging market activities. So, so I looked at emerging markets, sorry, uh, kind of chi- China, Brazil, Russia, uh, etc. So as I did that, and a lot of emerging market activity is out of China. And um, because of the time difference, markets were already very much trading in China when, when I'd get into the office. Um, so so I'm, I'm certainly not, not, a, not a trader, not kind of trading in and out of stocks every day. I, I, I see them very much as companies and not just pieces of paper to be traded. But, but certainly kind of I'd have to get my head screwed on fairly early in the morning to make sure that I was making kind of rational to, or kind of objective decisions when I got in because I'd be kind of looking at a market that others already had kind of 10, 10 hours um, of, of trading in. So, so that was my morning and then kind of 11 o'clock it pe- peters off again. And, and then it's very much just about research. At least personally, I kind of very much tried to take a long term approach to these things like I like to invest in companies. I don't like to be wrong. Um, and so kind of a lot, lot, lots of fundamental research, a lot, lot of kind of kissing frogs, et cetera, before, before you find, find the right one. Yeah. So I have two questions. I'll ask first one first. The first question is, how did you like, tell me about that moment where you realized that you wanted to be an investor? Because at least most people that I know, it's not necessarily something that they grow up around, but it's one of those things like you'll find it. And like for me, I knew as soon as I found out what investing really was, I knew that I wanted to do it and I knew I needed to be a part of it. So what was that moment like for you? For, for me, so so for me, I actually came in university. So I did university in China. And um, I remember the day that it was announced that Google was going to stop operating in China. And there was a like alternative China Chinese search engine called Baidu. Hmm. And I remember thinking, wow, Baidu is going to like absolutely sweep up. It'll be an incredible investment. But the, mar- the market's really clever and efficient. So there's probably I'm probably missing something. So I won't invest. And, and I remember just watching it kind of the years after just like leap forward. And I thought, wow, that really wasn't in the price. Uh, that kind of the market's perhaps not that efficient on a short on a short term view. It may be efficient in the long term, but wow, there's certainly opportunities and, and quite considerable opportunities as well um, to, to profit from that. And I think especially in emerging markets where um, kind of perhaps your your typical investor isn't as as qualified as you perhaps find um, in in developed markets. That there really are, in my view, at least some kind of outstanding opportunities to to get it actively involved um, in, in investing in companies. Absolutely. And one of the things I'm really curious about is I, I heard you say the term emerging market. What's really the difference between a emerging market versus maybe, I don't know what the opposite of an emerging market would be, but kind of shed a little bit of light on that. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it's quite, it used to be quite clear. I know it was a term that was kind of a long, long time ago. Um, the opposite of emerging is, is very simply, de- so, so basically you have developed markets, which are most developed countries, namely in Europe and, and Northern America. And then you have emerging markets. Um, these, there was for a time, the, ma- the major emerging markets, there was a kind of term called, coined called the BRICS. Um, that stands for Brazil, uh, Russia, India, China, and, and if you want to add an S onto it, perhaps South Africa. Um, so, so those are the major major emerging markets. But most people who invest in emerging markets will invest in over twenty countries. So you've got a lot of smaller countries like Turkey, Indonesia, um, Philippines, uh, etc. Kind of very kind of high growth, really interesting com- countries that are also important to the asset class. And then you've actually got an asset class even below that, uh, which is frontier economies. Th- those are kind of far far risky ones to some extent so you'd be talking about vietnam myanmar a lot of the african 
countries are our frontier economies as well uh, Kenya Nigeria um, so you, you and you can get pick up some absolutely brilliant opportunities in those economies as well if emerging markets in many cases are, are badly priced frontier economies you can you can find kind of ha- have some real pricing it more so have pricing errors and opportunities to profit as an investor so could you expand on those ideas because honestly I hardly ever hear anybody talk about the difference between a frontier market emerging market Market. I literally just heard the term emerging market. I've never heard and, of some of those terms. <laughs> and I forgot the term developing market because I live in America. So I have the, the I guess, the, the privilege of just being in a developed market. So I don't really call it anything. I just, oh, it's, you know, companies in America. The but market. yeah, <laughs> the stock market. So you mentioned these three different types of markets that you have in the world. And one of the things I'm curious about is, I guess, is there a kind of a difference in opportunity between all of these things and which one do you prefer and, and why? Yeah, it, that's a great, great question. I mean, it's quite a gray line in terms of where the emerging markets are now. So you have countries like Taiwan and South Korea, for instance, in, in emerging markets, but these these countries have per capita incomes ahead of plenty of uh, developed markets as well. So, so it's certainly not clear cut who is developed and, and, and who is emerging. Uh, and quite often it, it, it's, it's done by some extent to, to region as well. What, what's really interesting about these markets is that, yes, they have cycles. Yes, they have risks, um, like any other countries. But, but you've got some great long-term growth structures. So, for instance, kind of ri- rising healthcare penetration, increasing financial inclusion, uh, kind of infrastructure improvement, telecommunication development. There, there's lots of those long-term growth stories that can last over decades, um, not simply a, over a single cycle or so. And, and in addition, for individuals and investors, I think they're particularly attractive as a lot of the risks in emerging markets, and and there are plenty, um, but many of them are quite uncorrelated to the risks that you get in the the US or you get in the UK. So for instance, in in some emerging markets like Russia, you you would benefit from a higher oil price. In in others like um, India, a higher higher oil price is a risk. And so so you really got a, a, a very, very real mix of countries in a way that you you don't to the same extent in developed countries where they're they're all a bit more the same. Uh, Emerging markets at the moment, if if you look at the indexes, so like the the MSCI World Index, I think it accounts for about 11, 12% of the index. Uh, But if you look at in terms of the overall world population, I I might have my figures wrong here, but I think it's about 70, 75, 80% of world's population. And and that makes sense when you you consider how many billions uh, India and China have alone collectively, not to mention Russia, Brazil, and also those other kind of Indonesia, very populous countries as well. Um, and so given, given the structural growth of those countries, you, you would certainly expect over the next kind of 50, 100 years um, that they, they should kind of their proportion of economic GDP, global economic GDP should, should rise quite significantly. That's really interesting, just because I think, you know, the way you're looking at it, I forgot the term of the index that you use, but because they have, uh, one, they're, you know, developing infrastructure, two, they take up a small, uh, I guess, relatively small percentage of the financial index, but as far as the actual population, they're actually a 
majority percentage. So it's almost like, you know, you put those three things together and it's almost like a recipe for for growth as opposed to, you know, maybe more developed countries where, you know, the increase in equities is just going to basically come from, you know, whatever wherever you are in the economic cycle, for the most part, is that like kind of correct on your thought process of thinking? Yeah, 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 that, that's absolutely, absolutely it. I, I would say I'm mean, like kind of when, when it comes to some risks that are unique to, to these countries, uh, certainly, if, though, for anyone kind of considering an investment in these, it's w- worth being mindful of a the currency, um, some economies, Venezuela, etc, uh, you, you, you can have a real rough ride on the on the currency. And, and sometimes what happens is what you gain on the equities you can lose on the currency so your overall dollar return um can be uh, far less attractive as it would look at kind of um out the at the outset and and the second one is governance um it is worth looking into kind of management alignment of 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 these companies ownership structures uh etc a lot of countries in emerging markets are quite often state-owned as well um that's not great for investors because kind of often uh as a shareholder um your interests won't be high up the rank of kind of what what management will be interested in so there's plenty of risks these markets but but at the end of the day there's also some kind of there's some brilliant opportunities um especially if you look in china uh, some of the internet companies in china are growing phenomenally keep on growing phenomenally and still in my view at least at valuation levels far lower uh, than developed market equivalents that's crazy so from one thing i always wondered is i listen to a, a podcast with this guy named peter schiff before and I know that he invested in uh, companies like internationally. I'm not sure if they were specifically in emerging markets, but I think he mentioned kind of like the opportunity for dividend. Have you seen like one is dividend something that you even care about as a shareholder? And two, is there a difference in opportunity when it comes to comparing dividend in maybe a emerging market versus a already developed market? Yeah, it's uh, actually, I mean, that that's at the moment kind of a very current topic amongst emerging market investors. I, I'm certainly an investor that has a preference for a dividend, uh, at least a high high dividend payout. And in fact, the fund, which I used to co-manage, um, the Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Investment Trust, uh, a London listed investment trust, uh, we, we had a dividend yield of about four or five percent most of the time. So it there's actually kind of very good dividends in a lot of emerging markets. What what you find though is that there's different cultures. You have to look at A, the capability of companies to be able to pay, but but equally important, the willingness of management to pay. Uh, So some places like Korea, uh, they love to give investors dividends. They they always think that they can kind of, they they find ways to waste it it away, basically. In in places like India, um, they like to reinvest. And like that's more understandable. There's like, when there's high growth, when there's good return on investment opportunities, it absolutely makes sense for a company not to give the capital back and and to invest in new opportunities. So you, you also have quite a low dividend payout culture there as well. Quite often, no dividend or just only 20-30% of profits will be paid out. Um, you look at the other end of the spectrum, uh, a lot of Africa. Of, co- of companies on the African continent in Kenya, Nigeria, very high payouts, really attractive dividends. Um, funny enough, a lot of companies in Latin America as well also have um, good payout pos- policies and good alignment with shareholder interests. Uh, Russia, as it happens, uh, bizarrely, is another kind of very high, uh, you, you often get very high dividend payouts in, in those in the in 
in companies in those countries as well, often kind of plus uh, over 50% of earnings are paid out uh, in the form of dividends. Cool. So another thing I was, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, right. No, no, I, was, I was just going to share with you actually, because I actually looked since 2000, the proportion of total return for publicly listed companies in the form of dividends, nearly half the return of, of companies in emerging markets uh, was in dividends. So, so yes, you had had a kind of share price increase but actually about half of if you had invested in the index at least around half your return would have been in dividends uh, and instantly that that's quite a similar picture in developed markets in public equity but but actually even more so in places like the uk virtually all of your return would have been in dividends and, and even in the us despite all the high growth companies amazon tesla etc a large proportion of return it would have been in the form of dividends absolutely so Another thing that really came to mind, you mentioned a little while ago, just, you know, fundamental research. The question that I had is, what does that fundamental research, what does that include? And also, what are some of the things that you're looking for in uh, companies before you actually invest in them as a investor? Yeah, so so I, and I, I write about this in my, my book. I have a chapter on qualitative analysis and quantitative analysis. And the quantitative stuff is mostly um, accounting, the ratios, return on equity, return on invested capital over time. But for the qualitative part, I, I use what I call the court, castle and moat approach. I, I slightly poached this from Warren Buffett, who talks a lot about economic moats, obviously. Uh, so I've just slightly expanded on that. And, and what I look for is what I call a, kind of a, a company with a good court, so, so good management, uh, who are both kind of capable um, and, and well aligned with shareholders. Um, then an attractive castle, so, so a business that is able to kind of produce kind of long-term attractive levels of profitability and and i i say long term because it's quite easy to kind of kind of have a cyclical high every now and again and it, it, it's a very different state of mind to go and understand the actual forces uh, that affect long-term profitability. Um, so looking, for instance, at, at Porter's five forces uh, is, is quite a common way of doing that, where you, you look at the competitive intensity, the potential competitive intensity uh, within an industry. And then the, the last one is uh, that, that moat. And Warren Buffett explains this far better than I ever would, but, but basically you're, you want a company with a wide moat. And there's a number of moats it can have uh, that may be kind of lo- low cost. Uh, it could be the network effect. So for it, for instance, Facebook, yeah. uh, kind of the, the benefits as more people use it, so it becomes more competitive and kind of people use it, et cetera. So, so those are really the kind of the three axes against which I, I evaluate a company. I mean, pe- people at the end of the days have, have different ways of doing it, but, but that, that's my personal approach at least. Oh, I was just going to ask you if you could talk to us a little bit more about, you know, the ideas that are inside of your book. Oh, right. Yeah. So in my book, I'm not introducing kind of any newfangled theories. It's simply using the approach that most global professional investors will use to put a price on a company. Because at at the end of the day, if you're a growth investor, uh, if you're a value investor, if you're an income investor, it it ultimately, in every single case, it boils down to 
you wanting to get a buy into a business at a reasonable price so that there is some some upside. Nobody wants to buy an overvalued business. And, and yet you, you find kind of very few people can un- articulate, well, what is a business worth then? Because if you don't know what it's worth, then um, you don't know if you're under or overpaying. Uh, and, so, and so I was really writing that book was born out of my own frustration because I found that if you look online, uh, you, you can get some simple explanations, but overly simplified in my view and kind of can create risks of costly errors on your behalf. And at the other end, you, you've got a lot of academic stuff, but, it, but the practical application is rel- relatively limited. Uh, so, I, so I hope at least my, my book would be of interest uh, to those who want to invest a bit of money and, and want to do, kind of have, have an easy roadmap to, to learn how to value a company and be able to do that uh, in an informed manner. Yeah. And I think that's interesting, too, because there was a little amount of time where I was really studying just the stock market in general. And what I found is that, you know, when it comes to the actual valuation of the underlying business that this stock represents, is not a lot of information out there that actually tells you how to do it in, in actual practice, they'll tell you oh, it should include this, it should include that, but it's no like real formula. <laughs> it's like, it's almost like you get to the end of the YouTube video and it's like, yeah, but just you kind of go with your gut. It, it's somewhere uh, in this ballpark. I, and- I, so, I so know what you mean. Uh, it drove me to distraction. The, the idea, like everybody tells you to buy an attractively valued business or, or buy a business with a margin to error on the valuation side. Like, wh- wh- what does that mean? Like you, you can't <laughs> leave people hanging there. and I've been through there's so many books like that and you're so right and there's plenty of books that kind of wrap themselves up as valuation books but then just they just describe what a good good business is I mean like there's plenty of examples of good businesses uh, that you can lose a lot of money on if they're overpriced Um, you only need to go back to the tech bubble to go and to go to go and see that yeah Um, and it's about a lot of it's just about avoiding errors and like if you buy a good business yeah you'll probably make make money over time hopefully but you can also lose a lot of money in the interim periods and so just having just having a bit of a framework uh, to to know when you when you're putting yourself at risk i i think i think makes sense um, and so so hopefully i'll fill that gap that you explained because because likewise i find it so frustrating when people say buy, buy a value well duh and then don't tell you what that means yeah <laughs> if you don't diversify your investment portfolio you could end up losing it all but most business owners don't know how to diversify to mitigate those risks. That's why we created this resource for you. This passive investing guide is a must-have if you're planning to invest in businesses. Don't hesitate. If you have more than 25 grand liquid, then you can't afford not to take advantage of this resource. Download the four reasons why in 2021 you need small businesses in your portfolio now by going to www.abundantculture.co forward slash guide. So when it comes to really, you know, trying to figure out what's the price you should actually pay for this business, what are some of the metrics that actually go into the actual valuation of the actual price of the business? So for, for the book, I've split it up into to two types of valuation that, that, that you can use. Um, you can use relative valuation, which is based on the principle that similar businesses with similar outlooks and risk profiles should tra- trade at similar valuations. Um, and you don't need to have businesses of similar size either. You can standardize the valuation using ratio, m- much like in the same way if you're buying a property and, and you, there's a couple of other properties along the street. Uh, you can look at price per square foot 
in the same way with with ratios you can look at the price per earnings or price per sales or or when facebook i think when facebook brought whatsapp they used the price per user there's lots of ways that you can standardize it and then apply that ratio to to the business you want to value and come out with reasonable outputs uh, the, sec- the second way I, I describe value in companies uh, is intrinsic valuation, and that's namely uh, discounted cash flows. It gets a bit more complex here, and I, I do go through how to make a financial model and then how to do a discounted financial model. Um, there's a bit of maths, not much, and nothing that's not explained. Uh, but the, the principle uh, for that one is that a company is worth roughly what it's the, the cash flows that it will generate. Uh, and those are kind of discounted over time. So the idea being you would prefer to have $1 a day today than you were, would $1 uh, in five years time simply because of the risk premium, et cetera. Uh, so those are the two, two main principles that I explain. And I also go through things like behavioral economics. Uh, so kind of things to, to watch out for, things that we're, we're all, um, including myself, very exposed to in terms of kind of animal instincts, the kind of feed or feast nature of the market, etc. And also some kind of special cases. So for instance, leverage buyouts, uh, mergers and acquisitions and, and startup company valuation. Cool. That sounds so nice. So a question that I had for you a little while ago, you mentioned there are different types of investors. So could you go over that again and give us a little bit more detail into what uh, each type of investor is and like what kind of things they invest in? Yeah, yeah, sure. So for, for public equity, at least most people split investors up into either growth uh, quality or value uh, investors. And and all that simply, so if you're a value investor, say, for instance, Warren Buffett would, would believe he's a bit more of a value investor. It's not buying the, the Tesla, it's not buying the Amazon, buying a company that's attractively valued. So, so maybe that means something boring, a utility or a rail, railroad. Um, but as you're buying it at an attractive value, it means that you will kind of benefit over the long term. Uh, and that's quite a different approach to somebody who wants to buy the highest quality company who just wants to kind of buy into a business and sit on it and know that it won't go bust and won't have such a hardcore valuation discipline as Warren Buffett would have. Um, And then the third third type of investor that that's normally put out there is the growth investor. And that's where the investor far prefers to ha- have kind of high, high growth, uh, high growth company. I mean, I, as I said, I, I often, although those terms are commonplace in the market, I don't like to apply them so much myself because really, as far as I'm concerned, it boils down to, are you over or underpaying for a company? You can have a high growth company and still have it as a long-term value company. Um, if you brought Amazon in 2005, when set, set sales were very limited, it, it had no profit or profit prospects at all. Value investor wouldn't have touched it. But as it turns out, that would have been a, a phenomenal value opportunity yeah. uh, given, given its growth thereafter. So, so I'm always slightly hesitant about learning using those terms. Yeah, that makes sense because every now and again, they can be one in the same when yeah. it comes to certain, certain companies. One of the things I wanted to get an idea about is it seems like at least public equities, which is what we're talking about, stocks, a lot of times they it, it seems like they just go everywhere like for sometimes no apparent reason at all. Um, but over the long term, do you see that 
these stocks actually follow um, the growth and the value of the underlying company or can they be totally uncorrelated? Because I think there's been a lot of times in the past where I don't know if you heard about the GameStop thing, but it's like, you know, they had this huge surge in price, but it didn't seem like they had a a huge surge in actual operations. So Mm -hmm. in your opinion, you know, even though these things seem uncorrelated on the short end, for the long term, do you believe that for the most part, they're always correlated? Yeah, I, I, well, I, my view is that like markets are long, long term efficient. But and, and I think the term that's normally used is that in the short term, they, they follow a random path. So it can be very unpredictable in the short term where where markets go. I think as John Maynard Keynes said, the market can re- remain solvent for longer than you can. Uh, yeah. The idea that you could be very right about a company, but the irrationality of short-term markets means that you, you could be proven very wrong. Uh, and when I say long-term, I really mean kind of five years or, or even sometimes 10 years and above. And it's difficult because it kind of, I think for a lot of in- industry professionals, you're kind of, you are tracked on your, your annual performance year on year. And so you can have awful performance one year, but actually be kind of fundamentally totally right. And maybe you'll be proven right in year two or three, two, year two, three or four. Um, But there's a phenomenal amount of pressure to be right every year, Um, which I I don't think is very healthy because it creates quite a short term mentality rather than investing the company. It's I, I call it kind of information trading. So rather than trying to work out the value, you're just trying to get a little edge on each company. Yeah. So what will Tesla's quarter number numbers be? If I got a, if I got a more precise guesstimate than than the market has, then I can kind of know to buy or sell and make some in money. That that I think there's many people that call themselves fundamental investors that are really simply just information trading trading like that. And I think it's because of this short term mentality, the kind of performance pressure that a lot of fund managers feel. Yeah, and that makes sense. When it came to, I think you mentioned before, you uh, used to run a fund that and invested in different types of public equities. When it came to running that fund, two questions I have is, what are the things that kind of help make that a successful endeavor for you? But also, how did you manage to attract capital to that fund to then uh, deploy it into the various different types of companies that you believe were good investment? Uh, yeah, so, so so I co-managed the fund with, with somebody else. Uh, it, the fund was an investment trust. I know there is a US equivalent, but it, the name escapes me for that. What for what that is, and it was basically a closed-end fund which listed on the stock exchange uh, and and traded. And so, just like a company has share, shareholders and would be expected to produce annual and quarterly reports and meet, engage with shareholders. Uh, likewise, the fund very much used that same structure. So, so most of the time, if you want to go and fundraise, you go and make relationships, you build those over time. Um, when you're listing an investment trust, just like you're listing a company, it, it's about kind of really kind of a, a blitz approach. So, so you have an intense, a, a remarkably intense uh, kind of couple of months and, and weeks getting everything prepared and getting everybody on board. Because when it comes to the day that you list, you can't have people kind of those that say, well, maybe I'll do it tomorrow. They they won't be involved full stop. Yeah. Um, and and it takes for, for salespeople out there as well. It takes a very different mentality to get investors ready to invest on a particular date, rather than just warming them up over warming them up over time to invest. Uh, as and when they when they want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. So we went over a lot in this episode. Yeah. I think it was really, really interesting. It's something that we don't necessarily talk about a lot, but it's something that I've had an interest in in the past. But 
you can't find too many people who are actually well-versed in speaking about, well, basically speaking on that subject matter for different small business owners who might just be looking to get a return on investment and might be considering investing in public equities. In your opinion, what's the number one takeaway that they should actually get from this podcast episode? Um, I think I think if you, it's, a, it's a good question. And I think that just having some type of valuation discipline, it, it will save you, it will save you so much hassle later on. Um, kind of uh, when markets are going up, everybody, everybody's feeling, feeling great. But but when things kind of wash out, I, I think it's so easy to forget um, how painful down markets can be. Uh, and that's when having kind of some type of valuation discipline, it, it, it does just give you that margin for error, that buffer. It, it means that your drawdowns, your, your losses uh, will be far more limited um, than if you have simply invested in what's sparkly and fancy and and. Uh, at, at that time um so it, yeah uh, that that's that's all i'd say and, and, and obviously never never invest more than you can afford to lose as well for sure uh, absolutely great takeaways so you're on the abundant culture podcast and we like to ask every guest this question because we get so many different answers and the question is how do you spread abundant oh it's an interesting word how I think in some ways that the, the job of investing, kind of anybody that's an investor, there's investing gets a massively bad rap. And for many good reasons, like for many <laughs> good reasons, that there's there's plenty of unethical bad investors out there. But but the the actual process, the actual principle of kind of getting out there, valuing your company, doing fundamental valuation uh, and participating in the market, I think it's often really forgotten what a social and economic good that is, the, the benefits that it brings for society. Um, because it, it, it does mean that small companies can grow. Uh, it does mean that kind of savers can put their money to work and, and, and get invested. It does mean that it, it is a kind of pricing signal to the market where where should resources be be allocated and i i think kind of in in all the noise of of investing that that's often for kind of forgotten um and so for me i said what's my did it was it what's my greatest source of abundance or um, like how do you spread abundance yeah all right so yeah so 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 for me although i'm in a very limited way and i'm a very small small cog in that process that that does make me feel good that there there is a kind of broader social and economic benefit and i suppose you could say that that is a form of spreading abundance uh investing in, and taking a fundamental approach yeah absolutely mm-hmm. especially with your book so right. i think that's a, another form that uh you spread abundance because there's a lot of people who don't know this there's a ton that you taught me and i know i actually know more than the average person so i'm pretty sure that there's so much that you can uh share with people through that book so if somebody wants to let's say get your book or they want to reach out to you because they want to interview you for their podcast or for whatever reason how would they actually get into contact with you so my book the company valuation playbook i hope that will be coming out in the next two weeks just being formatted at the moment at last I'm just the the website for it will be the the company valuation playbook.com. If you want just just direct message me on 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 LinkedIn. Um I'm on Facebook as well. Uh so so I either of those work for me and I, I'm typically quite quick at getting back to people as well. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much, Charles, for coming onto the podcast and giving us a wealth of knowledge because I really learned so much. I was kind of just like a fly on the wall. <laughs> I will let Joe ask all the questions and I'm just going to sit here and learn. Uh, so this was truly a great episode and we really appreciate your time and you coming on. No, thanks so much and great questions. Thank, thank you. you.
If you own a small business and you might be looking to sell, you could run into some major issues. Forbes estimates that 9 out of 10 businesses listed never actually sell. Why? Because there's only one way to sell. You need to do these four steps first. So if you want to be a part of the 10% of businesses that sell for profits, we've created a free checklist for you so you can sell without those hurdles that normally hold you back. Download the free checklist by visiting www.abundantculture.co forward slash checklist. Thank you for listening to the Abundant Culture Podcast with Jazz and Joe. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave an honest rating and review. And remember, we're ready to buy your business. So if you're ready to sell or passively invest in other small businesses, go to AbundantCulture.co for more information. We publish episodes every Friday, so we'll see you next week.